welcome to another edition of hit the lights plus i've got pete with me again as usual how are we doing hi gary yeah not bad how are you yeah i'm great <laughs> you ready yeah i'm ready i don't know why i'm laughing but um nervous nervous, nervous. nervous laughter yeah um i don't like having co-hosts no <laughs> um so today it's uh we're gonna we've been doing a little bit of exploration um so pete obviously has recently done a, an ev installation and brought me along for a bit of the journey with him um and we thought we would share some of our considerations along the way and th- and factors that maybe others should be considering and learning when completing their own installations yeah it's a very broad topic and hopefully we can raise some of the main concerns that obviously i come across when i was doing mine Okay, so I mean, if we go right from the top then, and start looking at, I think Na- National Grid and UKPN, I think is a, it's probably a good place to start. So, in doing a bit of research for this, obviously we've noted on National Grid's website, so they they put out an article a little while ago, uh, uh, earlier in 2020 actually, um, where they made a statement that. It was estimated in 2002 the UK was at its peak in terms of utilisation at 62 gigawatts. And now in present day, 2020, we are down 16% to 52 gigawatts. And they've made the very bold statement that if every vehicle went electric overnight, assuming there was some load system management, that it would only then increase by 10% back to 57 gigawatts. Now, that's a, a pretty bold statement by UKPN there. Um, I think one of the the key clarifications that they've put in there is assuming load management. So as far as you're concerned, Pete, what, what, what do you engage from that as a statement? Yeah, so with the load management systems, I'm assuming manufacturers such as Zappi, They have their current transformers, which utilise your PV or solar sort of feeding tariffs, the economy sevens. So energy efficiency, basically, is what I'm taking from that. You need some sort of energy curtailment, whether load shedding or something similar like that on your system. So you're not using the full demand, but obviously we're going to be using some still. Yeah. So... From your knowledge and, and from our brief experience in delving into this, do all uh, EV car chargers have this system incorporated? No. It's um, probably something to say straight away is that no two manufacturers are the same. So I think the key point is there that not, not all manufacturers include for a load system, a load management system. Yeah, I mean, I know it's the, the main point, but I'm not having it. It's it's perfect time to bring it up. There's no two system that is the same. They all develop different things and they all try and sell you different stuff, but it's down to cost at the end of the day, isn't it? If you want to pay for it, then yeah, you'll get it. But Yeah, so it, I think it's say. just a, for me, it's just a slight concern that the National Grid are kind of making that assumption, yet there's nothing to mandate that that has to be a requirement. So whilst, okay, we may not get to quite up to the full 2002 you know load calculations and where where we were at 62 gigawatts i think there's a concern that if they're assuming load load management then potentially there could be yeah i mean i know it's a condition of olev you have to install some sort of smart features so that could be implemented through that however if you're just a you know a normal domestic spark such as myself then um, i'm not entertaining the olev 
platform. So I wouldn't necessarily have to install a smart charger. So let's just probably quickly cover that then. So OLEV, what is OLEV? It's the Office for Low Emission Vehicles. And they do a grant, which was £500, and it's now reduced down to a maximum of 350 which the installer has to take that on the chin until they pass it. And, so, um, yeah, just from other installers saying, it's quite difficult to get the paperwork in order. So All right, so we'll put that we'll put that to one side. That's potentially a, a catch-all a catch for the... Yeah. But obviously, like you say, not everyone is necessarily cares to go through that procedure. There's nothing that directs people to having to go through that procedure. No, if you wanted to specialise and do it all the time, then yeah, it's probably recommended. But for me, in my current situation, I'm not going to entertain it. So probably the other aspects of it is UKPN um, having this requirement to grant permission or having a right to refuse um, an additional load being adding to the property. But I understand they can be retrospectively granted for loads below 60 amps. If the maximum demand is less than 60 amps, and you're installing up to a 7.2 kilowatt charger, you can apply for retrospective granting, basically, after 28 days of the installation. However, I'd always recommend doing it prior, because there's nothing worse than putting all that money out there to be told no. Any installation of 60 amps or more, you need to get permission before you do it. So the one I've just done recently, I did what they call an EV link. You go to the Energy Network Association page, and you talk to your local DNO through there, get an application, a reference number, which, again, I'd always recommend doing because you've shown you've done your due diligence, taken appropriate steps. And, um, yeah, it's the proper job, proper way to do it, really. As part of the going through the UKPN application then for the loading, is there anything that links you back to the OLEV requirements in terms of having to have you know, a smart system in place for the load management? From your experience? It's basically just an application saying, have you considered this? Have you considered that? How do you plan on doing this? So assuming, obviously you mentioned that you didn't put any smart systems in on your EV charger that you installed. It was client supplied, to be honest. But yeah, I I would if I was to do it myself. But because they supplied it, it was just a sort of standard run-of-the-mill one. Okay. And there was no issues with um, UKPN granting permission? The only issue I faced, which I think people that follow my page will have seen, is that it turned out to be a 60 amp main fuse and my maximum demand went from 55 up to 85. So before they come to fit it and to upgrade the main fuse two weeks prior to my installation, I've locked off the installation so they can't use the EVSC in the meanwhile. Moving on to some of the other requirements in terms of UKPN. There's the consideration, isn't there, that all UKPN supplies where TNCS or TNS should be considered a PME um, because they're likely to be linked somewhere in the network. And I believe there's a statement, isn't there, on their uh, standards? Yeah, so I don't actually have the link now, but it's pretty easy to find if you just type in the UK Power Network Standards. It's on page 57 or something like that. So, yeah, just to run us through what the application form from the Electrical Network Association actually has, it's um, an EV and a heat pump application, which confused me at first because I obviously was just looking for the EV. But it has all the basic details you'd expect, your address, address of installation, um, whether it's going to be an EVSE or a heat pump, how many phases. It actually wants your declared voltage at the connection point as well. Maximum demand for premises before and after installation. 
It has a DNO reference number, which is good to have. Um, earthing system, is the surface looped type of installation? Is it a domestic or other, obviously? And have we identified any issues with the adequacy of the existing supply equipment? And if so, what? And that is the whole application. So it's not hard, it takes a bit of time. And I'd try and get that in a couple of weeks before you install. Mine took about a week to come back, but it was literally the day I was installing it turned up. Very useful information. Um, I think one of the, back to the original point about PME systems. Um, mm -hmm. So it's actually an EDS 06, which is the uh, UKPN standard, um, which you can find their library of documents online for free. Basically in there, in B.4, it just says about making the consideration that it's highly likely that in TNS and TNCS systems, they should be considered TNCS systems. Yeah, and that obviously stems from if there's a fault out on the service line, they'll be using a split concentric cable to make the repair which is obviously two cores instead of three. So the two cores would be a line and a neutral and earth combined, a CNE. Yeah. So before we've even started, those are some of the considerations just with the UKPN head. So we're going to start looking at the install considerations now. Um, so primary one is going to be the types of vehicles. Pete, do you want to just take us through some of those? Yeah. So they've all got little um, acronyms. So yeah, we get a BEV, which is a battery electric vehicle. And these are devices which are solely electrical. There's no combustion engine in that at all. Then we have an extended range electric vehicle, which has uh, charging from an onboard electric motor, but as an internal combustion engine, which does sort of compensates for some of the other loads to do with running the car. And then you get a plug-in hybrid vehicle, which utilizes both the internal combustion engine and a battery, and it sort of switches between which one you want to use. Probably one of the typical considerations is going to be the modes, isn't it? Yeah, obviously there's different types of charging which to come with them. So we get, the yeah, you say the different modes. So the, the big one would be a mode one, which even though it exists, it is not recommended because it's basically plugging a car into a 13 amp 1363 socket we can't guarantee if it has an rcd protection and obviously it's not suitable for running at a load of 10 amps or more for a period of time yeah so i think the typical definition is going to be a non-dedicated circuit and socket outlet has been provided isn't it well you could say that yeah what's what's mode two so mode two is basically the exact same thing however the charging lead incorporates what i call an icu which is an in-cable control unit and that has an RCD built in and has a little bit of extra protection. But again, it's it's more for just drip charging. Yeah, granny so lead, it's, not, it's not drip charging. It's a granny lead. It's just, yeah, short bursts of charging, short period of time, just a little drip feed. It's not for giving it the big boost that you're going to need if you're just trying to charge it up quickly before you pop up the shops. You're on about trickle charging. Trickle charging. Yeah. You're you're the drip. It's a trickle. Oh, I'll be the drip. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's... In, Typically, we'll have a, a lead that incorporates an RCD. Typically, it's up to three kilowatts, which is about the 13 amps. And residentially, that will give you a six-hour charge time. Yeah. So, say, so if you're going to leave it on overnight, it's okay. But you'll be pulling three kilowatt out of the socket. And as we discussed in our previous podcast, is that likely to survive? Yeah. Let's not go back into that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, mode three. Mode 3 is probably going to be the more common one, which is a dedicated um, circuit and charger. It's residentially, typically the largest will be about 32 amps, 7.4 kilowatt on a single phase. It's providing around about a three-hour charge time, depending on battery sizes, obviously. 
that's probably fairly typical isn't it that's what we're going to find in most households and that's one you installed as well i did it? yeah i installed a mode three so yeah i think typically i mean it's important to mention that they have to be dedicated circuits so there's nothing else can come off these because i have been to projects where they've just spurred off a, a local circuit and no that's naughty it has to have its own circuit it's just mm-hmm. something to raise but yeah domestically we're looking at a mode three but then as we move more commercially then we'd be looking at the mode four which obviously is more your sort of a uh, realm, Gary. So do you want to take that one? Yeah, sure. So um, it's the, obviously it's the same as uh, Mode 3, but it's utilising DC rather than AC charging. Um, typically, it can be up to 100 kilowatts, which would give you a 15-minute charge time, and it's typically going to be for commercial and industrial use. I think it's probably a, a good point to note as well, just in terms of residentially and commercial industrial is that i think in 722 there is an explicit statement about 100 percent um load being calculated as well there's no diversity that can be applied to these circuits as well so even if you were to potentially have one or two it's still 100 percent thing i want to mention is in a mode four you'd always have a tethered lead as well they're not detachable as they are in the others but a mode four would always come fixed to the charger yeah good point um so then in terms of the supplies to these units um that will give you these various different modes we'll start to look at the installation so then we get down into the nitty-gritty of types of rcds so obviously the first type most people are going to be familiar with this one it's the ac um rcd um so it's going to be the one that's typically found throughout most installations and residential installations um and that just monitors an ac waveform so then we move on to more specifics that are starting to be incorporated into various um car charging units i've seen so we also have uh, type a rcds don't we as well now yeah and that's um what a lot of chargers will be using if they incorporate a dc protective device but uh, an a type rcd would allow for up to six milliamp of dc fault current in the ac circuit so basically it's an ac but it's got a little bit more protection over dc um then we obviously get a type f which i don't think we'll be seeing too much which is more frequency controlled equipment appliances and similar and then we move on to the big boy which is the type b so that's um, typically three-phase electronic equipment, but also for electric vehicle charging where any DC fault current is greater than six milliamps. So sort of what I touched on earlier, you can have a type A RCD, but you also need to have a residual current in monitoring device for DC, which will detect the six milliamp or above. And the two together sort of give you the same protection as a type B. Also, it's worth noting that a lot of manufacturers will supply their EVSE with a C40 breaker. Now, if we do 7.2 divided by R230, we end up with about 31.3 amps. So you'd think, well, maybe I could get away with a 32 amp supply, but some cars naturally pull more than 32 amps. So as it's on charge overnight or however, that could actually trip the MCB. It's just something to bear in mind, and it's good practice to work it off a 40 amp breaker. So you've obviously completed your your install recently, um, and I think there was a couple of other considerations you wanted to make as well, weren't there? So yeah, before we install anything, never just turn up to fit it. Always do a pre-site survey. You need to go to site, have a look around, because you need to do that in order to do your EV link. 
how are you going to say what you're going to write your application form if you don't physically see the property first? Um, you need to obviously look at the earthing arrangements, the loading. You might have to do a bit of testing just to see if you are getting that. You've got to look at the bonding, all the sort of normal stuff that you would do if you're going to add another circuit in. But we need to also do stuff like a simultaneous contact assessment, which is obviously if you're going to utilise, let's say, a TT system, you can't then touch the car and then touch the neighbour's car at the same time. Or touch if you're just doing a TT for the car charger, you can't touch the car and then touch a class one light fitting, for example, or a gas pipe or something similar like that. Obviously, we've we've put a, a note here about potential u- for use of IT system. Yeah, so one way we can get over a simultaneous contact issue is to use an isolating transformer. Obviously, the trouble with that is that they can be a bit costly and uh, put a bit of size. You've got to have somewhere you could hide them away quite nicely, which isn't necessarily that possible in a domestic situation. In terms of how you did your installation, I think you actually used the one of the Open, the Mat-E devices, didn't you? Yeah, I used the company called Mat-E for my one, which is, yeah, it, um, it's basically a small device which monitors the voltage difference between the line and the neutral. And if it goes above 253 or below 207, I believe there's a little voltage sensing relay inside, which trips out all of the conductors, being the line, the neutral and the earth. There's a British standard to follow for these, which is a BS60255-1. And that part of that, it also has to fail safe. So if any of the electronics actually fail, the contactor needs to open, stop, obviously, voltage transferring to the car. So, I mean, that it's a good it's a good point. It's something we, we discussed. So I've seen installations, and I think you probably did the same, didn't you, where you came off Henley Blocks? Yeah, so I've split the installation. There was a 17th Amendment 3 board, and it was a split load. So I didn't have a Type A RCD, which I needed. So I obviously checked the manufacturer's instructions. They were happy for me to do that. So Henley blocks and took the tail straight into the device, into the bottom of the Type A RCBO, and then fit it that way. So I think one of the things, one of the considerations that I think necessarily could be made is regarding surge protection as well. So obviously I uh, approached um, various companies, um, won't name them, obviously regarding the testing of their devices and, and stuff like that. I think they'd stated that they'd never come across a failure of that type in terms of um, surging. But I think there is still that inherent risk that if you're going to Henley block off out into a different installation um, in terms of the definition of an installation um, as per BS7671, then that needs to be a consideration. What is the definition of an installation? So for anyone listening, the definition of an electrical installation uh, is an assembly of associated electrical equipment having a coordinated characteristics to fulfil specific purposes. So what, what are some of the other considerations that we would need to make uh, as we've already mentioned obviously the OLEV approval you'd have to have the smart facility see we've, we've kind of mentioned that some of the manufacturers out there obviously do do already provide the load monitoring um by putting cts on very it doesn't have to necessarily be alternate supplies but it can be high demand loads um which kind of leads into the the other uh, availability of load shedding units um which are starting to come into operation so obviously if you've got a 
a, a restricted head, whether that's you're in a, a block of flats or you're in a, a shared environment that means you've got a limited load um, potentially that you're not going to be able to increase. There's a way of actually utilizing um, CTs to monitor various loads of equipment that you might have, say a shower at say seven kilowatts or something that you've got in your house that you're not going to actually be able to physically run the car charger and the shower at the same time. Um, so I think one manufacturer that is kind of delving into this market is a Garrow unit um, where it'll monitor the current of the one of the units and it'll then prioritize the other and shut one load off. So if, if say, obviously you want to get home, you shower, you prioritize the shower and it'll switch over the loads to your shower. And then once you're done utilizing your shower, it'll put the load back on to the car charging unit. Yeah, I think you can buy them as a priority or a non-priority unit, but in the event of a car charger, you'd always prioritize the other load. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And I, I think they are starting to expand out the number of actual units you can actually do, aren't they? So potentially you might have three, even four loads that would run through this unit and work their way through prioritizing because it's just literally a CT and some, some relays, to be perfectly honest, um, at the heart of it. Yeah, it's a nice way of splitting up the demand, as you say. If you've got a load of circuits which are unlikely but could be ran all at one at the same time, it's a nice way of splitting them up. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, that feeds back into the UKPN's load load management. It doesn't have to have be super intelligent, you know, car chargers. It, it, it can be very simple contactors and, and current sensing relays and stuff. Yeah, no. And it's, I don't know if it's worth mentioning at the time of recording this podcast, but I've just seen this morning that Garrow have actually released a device similar to the MAT-E as well that detects for the OPEM voltages. Right, okay. And does that incorporate load changeover as well? I'm assuming you can. They seem to be quite modular in their design, the Garrow units, so I'm sure you could do that. Okay, yeah, no, fair enough. And then we've, we've already kind of touched on a, an Economy 7 style metering and and charging overnight potential arrangement yeah i know like with certain devices you can set up timers to charge overnight so don't start until 10 o'clock for example and then stop charging at six in the morning so you're not paying the, the highest price to charge a car yeah which probably comes back into the the mode two type of charging doesn't it and um in terms of having the longer charge time you know the six hours that is an overnight charge you're not gonna pop home charge up and then pop out again you you know you're going to be needing to do that sort of thing overnight so i think domestically we will be charging overnight it's unlikely you'll be just popping in for a quick five minute charge whereas you'd be better off going up your local supermarket for that because they'll have these mode fours the dcs the rapid charges i think probably the key the key point i think we'll probably leave with is that no two manufacturers are the same so I think, like, like we kind of said in the installation considerations, do do your site surveys up front. Look at the, the mode types. Look at your types of RCD. Look at the other potentials in the installation. Look at your load management. Um, potentially look at your metering and your incoming. Design your installation from there. Yeah, I'll probably just push that a little bit further. So it's not just two manufacturers that aren't the same, but there are no two installations the same. You could do a neighbouring property to the one I did the other day and go for a completely different installation method because of, as you say, the uh, characteristics that you've been dealt. 
So there is no set way to go to every job and install the same. It's some, you know, we'd have to go there, and that's why the survey is the most important part of the job. Well, I think that's probably a good point to end it on. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> go on, go on. No. You wanted to say it. Go on. Do it. I did. Let's do it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gary, for having me on again, and uh, thank you to everyone for listening. <laughs>